Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. You know, when I was growing up, my family, we were really all about sports. Absolutely everything we did revolved around mine and my sister's sporting events. All of our family vacations had to do with where we were going for uh, some sporting tournament or, or match or things like that. Uh, most of our gifts that we would get for Christmas or our birthday was some piece of a sporting equipment, something that we needed for sports. I remember this one year, my sister, uh, she was really into basketball, and she really wanted these shoes. There was these new Jason Kidd sneakers out, and they were like really fancy, and, and she wanted them. And for months, she, all she would talk about is how she needed these shoes, how she was going to play basketball in these shoes constantly asking my mom and dad for these shoes. And now her birthday came and uh, she had a game later on in the afternoon. So my parents gave her her present early in the morning and she opened it and she was all excited because she got these shoes that she wanted. And I remember we, we went to her game and, and she's playing and everybody's running up and down the court playing basketball. And she kept stopping in the middle of the game and bending over and cleaning her shoes and wiping her shoes off. Right? It kind of became a joke to our family, right? I kind of teased her about it for a long time. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how that's kind of the attitude that we need to have regarding sin. You see, when we look at our life, we need to have that same attitude that we're willing to stop everything that we're doing, that we're willing to be drastic, that we're willing to, even in front of people, go to Jesus and be cleansed of our sin, that we aren't willing to have one stain on our soul, on our body. And I believe that as we get into Ephesians chapter 5, that, that's Paul's purpose. He, he's showing us what the, the proper Christian looks like, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and to walk with Christ, uh, and comparing it to the opposite, to, to live in the world and, and to walk according to the, the prince of the power of the world. And the one thing that separates us is that we're trying to live a pure life. We're walking in purity. I mentioned before that Ephesians could be outlined into three sections, that in chapters one through three, it's really about the believer's wealth. It's all about who God is, what God's done for us, and all the blessings that we have in Christ because of who God is and what he's done for us. It's all about our spiritual resources, our spiritual blessings, our spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. In chapters 4 and 5, the shift kind of focus, uh, and it becomes about the believer's walk. Now Paul is saying, in light of everything that you have in Christ, everything that Christ has done for you, walk or live this way. Uh, we're, we're to, uh, in light of who God is and all that he's done for us, uh, we're supposed to live in a way that demonstrates that we have this unfathomable inheritance. In verse six, or chapter 6, though, we get to the believer's warfare. And here he's telling us, hey, uh, this is, we have invisible spiritual forces that are opposing us and, and trying to trip up our walk and, and trying to hinder us from walking the way that the Lord wants us to. And here's how you're going to have victory over them. And he gets really specific and he tells us how to have victory over the enemy. But today we find ourselves in this section having to do with the believer's walk. Now, Paul uses this word walk, it's the Greek word peripateo, a little differently than we typically use the word walk. He's not talking about putting one foot in front of the other and kind of moving around on a sidewalk. That's not the way he's using walk here. No, Paul is using the word walk as a metaphor for our conduct, for the way that believers live their lives. He's saying, in light of who God is, you need to conduct your lives in this way. You need to live in this manner. And we've already seen this word a couple of times in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Right? You need to walk worthily. And then in verse 17, he says, 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Right? So, so we're to have a worthy walk. We're to have a, a walk that's different, that's set apart from the Gentiles, from the, the pagans in the world. And now we're going to get into having a walk of love. In chapter 4, verse 17, he started the section really comparing and contrasting the way that we used to walk as Gentiles and the way we should walk as believers. We're told to put off the old man and to put on the new. He's saying our, our new life in Christ should be totally different than the way that we used to live. In fact, Paul then gives some specific examples of what that looks like. He says that we should stop lying and start telling the truth to one another for we're members of one another, right? It, it should change the way that we talk. We should be start telling the truth and stop lying because lying hurts the body. We should stop stealing and instead of stealing, get a job so that we could in turn be forgiven, so we could be generous, so that we could give, right? It, it's not just about me and what can I get. It, it should be about what can I give and how generous can I possibly be? We should use our words to impart grace and not argue with or slander one another. And in chapter 5, he's going to continue these same ideas. He's going to say that we should imitate or follow God, and it should affect us in three ways. Number one, we should walk in love, right? God is love. So if we imitate God, our lives are going to be marked by love as well. Secondly, he's going to say that we need to walk in light. Remember, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. Next week, we're going to look like what it means for the believer and how we can imitate God's light, how we could be little lights in the world. And thirdly, we are to walk in wisdom, or King James, walk circumspectly. You know, God is truth, and if we're imitating him and walking in him, we're going to display the type of wisdom that he possesses. You know, I love this metaphor walk that Paul uses because it implies that we're going somewhere, right? We're, we're not stagnant. We're not just staying in one place. Now, we might look at Ephesians chapter 5, and this might seem difficult. This might seem kind of condemning. It might look at it and say, wow, like, this isn't me. I got a ways to go. Uh, this could be a rather difficult passage for some people, but that's okay. You know, I, I, I want to remind you of this, that genuine faith isn't about perfection. It's about progress. You see, we're on a walk. We're all going somewhere. And the more that we walk with Jesus, the further we get on our walk, the more we're going to display these things, the more we're going to take these characteristics upon ourselves. So don't be discouraged. Just say, hey, you know what? I need to work on these things. I need to walk with Jesus a little bit more. I, I need to, 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 to follow Jesus a little bit better. And they'll start to become more and more a part of your life. Uh, fill this in for number one, uh, or your first fill in. As Christians, we are to try to mimic God. Fill in the word mimic. In verse one, it says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul's saying we're to be imitators of God. Some translations say we're to follow God. We're to be followers of God. You know, this Greek word for imitator or follower is the word that we get the English word mimic from. Right? So he's really saying we need to mimic God. Now, it's natural for a child to mimic their father or mother. You know, growing up, I really wanted to be like my dad. I loved my dad. He, he was my hero. I, I remember this one time, me and my mom, she was taking me to get a haircut, and we got in this huge fight. I, I was really upset with her because she wouldn't let me or let the, me have the barber shave the, the sides of my head here so I could have a receding hairline like my dad did. That's how much I wanted to be like my dad. Now, I'm glad that she won that argument, but, uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to be like my dad. And more often than not, this, this idea of like father, like son is inherited. It, it just comes natural. You know, my family used to tell me 
that me and my dad, when we played basketball, we looked the exact same. You know, I would put my arms on my side and rest the same way he would. I would make the same facial expressions, especially when I was angry or upset as he would. When I got mad, I would chew on the side of my jersey the same way he did. No, I never saw my dad play basketball. I never saw a video of him playing basketball. Yet we, we had the same mannerisms because I came from him. It, it, it's like father, like son. Have you ever seen that commercial where uh, back in the day where the, the kid would be caught smoking or drinking or that, and the dad would be like, where'd you learn this? The kid would be like, I learned it from you, dad. And the idea was you need to be careful as parents what you do because your kids are always watching and always learning. The idea is that's how we're supposed to be. But with Jesus, with God, we're to be imitators of God. We're to take on God's resemblance. In Ephesians 1.5, it says, He predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. See, we've been adopted. We've been brought into God's family, giving us the family name. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we've been adopted into the family, right? We get the family name. Now we've been born into the family. We get the family nature. Peter says that we've become partakers of the divine nature. So the idea is we have the family name. We're partakers of the family nature. And the longer that we're in the family, the, the, the more that we are around our family, the more we're going to start to take on the family resemblance. Right? Or the more we're going to start to look like our father. That's called sanctification, friends. That's exactly what that is. In the Bible, we're told to be holy as our heavenly father is holy. We're told to be merciful as our Father is merciful. We're to be perfect in love as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You, you know, just to be like God seems like a really tall order, and it is. But I want to be clear. God isn't asking us to replicate all that he is. You know, the theologians, they like to uh, break up God's attributes into two categories. They have his, what they call his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. And the idea is with his communicable attributes is we're able to copy those. Those are things that we also have in us, being created in his image. But his incommunicable attributes are things that only he could do. Those are things that belong only to the divine. For example, we're not able to be self-sufficient. In fact, we're supposed to be sufficient on God, right? If we tried to be self-sufficient the way that God is self-sufficient, we would actually be sinning. We're not able to truly be eternal. Yes, we get everlasting life. We're not going to die. We're going to live forever. But we didn't live forever in eternity past like the way that God has. We haven't always existed in the way that we are. We don't have the ability to be omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at once. We're bound by the the laws of time and space. Well, we can't be omnipotent, right? I, I can't create out of nothing. I can't speak things into existence the way that God can. But we can copy his communicable attributes. You see, be, I could be gracious. I could be merciful. I could be just. I could be loving. I could be full of kindness. I could be full of truth. All of these things, these attributes of God that I could take on. And that's what Paul is telling us. We need to copy God in these areas. In Ephesians 5, our text for tonight, the focus is on loving the way that God loves. So for letter A, fill in the word God. We're to love the way that God loves. And go ahead and read our text again, because it's only a couple of verses. Again, it begins with a therefore. So we need to look at what comes before it. What is that therefore? Therefore is the idea. And, and we see that these two verses are very much tied together. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted means uh, sympathetic. Let the things that affect your brother or your sister affect you. 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Jesus also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So love and forgiveness are intertwined before and after our command to walk in love and to imitate God. <laughs> From chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 21, it's one really big section. It kind of has the same theme, and it's hard to break up or where to decide. One section begins and the other section ends. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of doing our best as we can here. But again, verse 32 could go with the previous passage, or it could be a part of this one. But we are to love the way that God loves. We're to walk in love. Can I remind us that love is the greatest commandment? We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as our self. John, Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room, after he washes their feet, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you love one another. And not only is it the greatest commandment, but it's also the greatest apologetic. In verse 35, he goes on to say, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So the way that we're going to please and honor and obey God is by loving one another. The way that we're going to allow the world to know who we are is by loving one another. So love is pretty important in the Christian life. I think a, a great verse that encapsulates the passage that we're covering tonight is in 1 John. 1 John 4 verses 8 through 11 says, then one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Love is the essential nature of God. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And for number one, fill in the word forgiveness. God's love begins with forgiveness. I already mentioned that this passage, our command to imitate God, to mimic God, and to walk in love, is right before it, it talks about forgiveness, and right after it, it talks about forgiveness. The direct context is with forgiveness. But God's love always begins with forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is the key that opens the door to all of God's other blessings, to, to, to all the other aspects of God's love. Nobody could experience the blessings and the love of God unless they first experience the forgiveness of God. Without the forgiveness of God, I would be in the dark when it comes to the love of God. You see, forgiveness and love always go together. Where there's no forgiveness, there's no love. That's why the self-righteous amongst them, there is no love. They don't think that they need forgiveness, and therefore they don't extend forgiveness to anyone else. So it's a community where there just is no love. It's really sad when you think about it. We can measure the extent of one's love by the extent of their forgiveness, really. You know, the more somebody is willing to forgive, the more they love. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In John 1, 9, it says, or 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we look at the extent of God's love, it's infinite. However many sins you have, he's going to forgive them all in Christ. All you have to do is ask. 
That there's no limit to the amount of God's love. There's no limit to the amount of God's forgiveness. You're not going to outsend the grace of God. In Daniel 9 9, it says, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the attributes of God, it's one of the characteristics that make up who He is. So if we're going to model or mimic God's love, we'll need to begin with forgiving people. And to the degree that we forgive people, the degree that we love people. And number two, God's love initiates forgiveness. So in the word initiates, we might think, okay, I need to forgive people who have offended me. I'll wait until they come and apologize and ask for my forgiveness. But this wasn't God's pattern with us. No. God forgave us before we even looked for forgiveness. In Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We, we weren't looking for forgiveness. Listen to the way that Paul describes us before salvation in the book of Romans. This is incredible. Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's none, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongue they keep on deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound like you're looking for forgiveness? No, but it was exactly when we're in that state that God reached down and forgave us. He sought us out and offered us forgiveness. He initiated forgiveness. You know, salvation or, or our forgiveness is a complete work of God. It really is. That's why the author of Hebrews says that he's the author and the perfecter, or the author and the finisher of our faith. Salvation and forgiveness began in his mind, not in ours. He was the one that thought of it. He was the one that initiated it. He was the one that sought us out. He was the one that told us we needed it. He was the one that granted it to us. In Ephesians 2.1, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is, when was the last time you heard a dead person ask for forgiveness? They, they can't. They're dead. They're, they have no clue of what's going on. They're, they're not there. So if we're going to look like God in the way that we love and the way that we forgive, we're going to need to take the initiative in doing so. Now, this could be kind of awkward. It really can. One semester when I was at the Bible College in Jerusalem, uh, we had this, this student, and, and he, was a, he was a real challenge. He was especially difficult. And he was causing all kinds of problems. And uh, I finally had to dismiss him. We had to tell him, you know what? You, you can't stay here anymore. Uh, you need to leave. You, you, you can't be a part of the school. So I sat down with him, and I did just that. Later on, I heard that he was still in Jerusalem, that he didn't go home. And, and he was kind of having a rough time. He didn't have any money. He didn't have anywhere to stay. And so I found a way to reach out to him. And I, I met up with him, and I bought him dinner ordered a pizza, paid for it, took him after dinner to the grocery store and bought him like over $100 worth of groceries and all of that. And, you know, he seemed all thankful and whatnot. And then uh, the next day, though, I heard from another one of the students who had met up with him. He's like, man, you wouldn't believe what that guy was saying about you. He was just slandering you left and right and saying, and I'm not going to repeat the mean things that he said, but he, he, he told me that. And, and, and to be honest, I was, I was angry. I, I was really upset when I heard that. I was like, after I did all that for you, you're just going to spit in my face. That, that's what I was thinking. But I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to let this fester. So I told him I wanted to meet up with him again. And he reluctantly said yes. And so I met up with him and I said, hey, I forgive you. And he's like, you forgive me for what? For slandering me. And I explained to him, I know that you are slandering me, but I'm not going to hold it against you. I forgive you, and you know I'm going to let it go, and all of that. And, 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 and as I did that, he just broke down. 
he, he just started weeping. And I hugged him, and, and he looked at me, and he said, you know what, I've, I've never had anybody love me like that. I've never experienced love like that, that I would be just so wrong and, and so mean to you, and you would just continually love me, and you would come and forgive me in that way. The added benefit was I no longer wanted to wring his neck for, you know, slandering me, right? So, so we both won in that issue. You see, sometimes people aren't even going to know that they've offended you. But if you initiate forgiveness, you both will get past their sin. You could give them an opportunity to 1 John 1, 8 it, and become forgiven and washed. And you see, even if they don't realize that they've sinned or offended you, they're still defiled by it. Right? If they didn't know that they've offended you, they don't know that they've sinned against you in some way, that sin is still defiling them. It's still weighing on their conscience. It's still eating at them, whether they know it or not. And you're giving them an opportunity to confess it, to be freed from it. So by extending forgiveness, even if they don't ask for it, they acknowledge they need it, you're helping and loving them. And not only does love initiate forgiveness, but it continually forgives. Remember when Peter thought he was being generous when he said, hey, how often should I forgive a brother when he sins against me to Jesus? And he said, suggest seven times, because that was the Jewish custom, that you would forgive someone up to seven times, and then after that, no more need to forgive them, the rabbi said. Remember what Jesus said? He says not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, I don't think Jesus meant that we have to forgive people exactly 490 times and we need to be keeping a tally in our phone and at 491, it's like, ha ha, I don't have to forgive you anymore. No, he's saying continually forgive. No matter how many times the opportunity to forgive arises, you need to forgive is the idea. Just keep on forgiving. Can you imagine how, if God set a limit on how many times he'd forgive us? If he set a limit on how many times you could sin and receive forgiveness, and then after that, you're done. See, we all need God's infinite grace, infinite forgiveness, and we should be able to extend that to each other as well. Point number three, there's a cost to love. Fill in the word cost. In our passage, the cost for displaying God's love was offering his only begotten son. There's a cost, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live in faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was a cost. There was a giving of the son. You know, displaying his love and offering us forgiveness cost God greatly. It literally bankrupted heaven. It cost the father his only begotten son. It cost the son fellowship, intimacy with the father. And if we're going to imitate God's love and forgiveness, there's going to be a cost for us as well. Maybe the cost for us is going to cost us our comfort to go and initiate forgiveness with somebody that's offended us. Maybe it's going to cost us our pride a little bit to forgive somebody that's hurt us. Maybe there will be a financial cost to it. Maybe we'll have to forgive a debt. Can I remind us of this? That forgiving others will never cost us as much as it costs God to forgive you of our debt. And the cost for forgiving far exceeds the cost of unforgiveness. Remember the story I told a few weeks ago of Corey Tim Boone? And she talked about, uh, Corey Tim Boone was a, a lady, she lived in Germany during the Holocaust, and she was taking in a bunch of the Holocaust survivors and protecting them from the Germans. And she ends up getting caught. She ends up going to the same concentration camps that the Germans that she was protecting or I'm sorry, the, the Jews that she was protecting from the Germans uh, were being sent to. She ends up getting freed and moving. She actually lived in Placentia uh, and came and spoke a few times at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa and that. But 
Anyways, she said this at the end of her life. She said, in all my years working with Holocaust survivors, uh, they, they, all of them fall into one of two groups. On one group, there was people that were able to move on, live a productive, meaningful life, make something of their life. And the other group couldn't. They just uh, were stuck. They needed people to care for them. They weren't able to do anything. They didn't, weren't able to do anything really meaningful with their life. They were just constant victims. She said the one thing that separated the two groups was the one group found a way in themselves to forgive others. They found a way to forgive the Germans who had captured them and persecuted them and tortured them. And in forgiving them, they became free and they were able to move on and live a productive life. Those that couldn't find it in it to forgive them, they just remained a victim. They remained hurt and broken and able, unable to move past what had happened to them. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this story of a guy who owed uh, his master this huge debt, say $10 million. And the guy comes to him and is like, hey, you know what? You owe me the debt. I'm going to throw you in jail. And he pleads with him, says, no, 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 forgive me. Give me more time. And so the owner forgives him of the debt. And right after that, he goes to his friend who owed him like 20 bucks. And he's like, hey, where's my 20 bucks? Give me my 20 bucks. What are you doing? You owe me 20 bucks. And his friend didn't have it and pleads for mercy. But he wouldn't give him mercy. He threw him in the jail and demanded that he stayed there until the guy was able to repay him. And Jesus says, no, that the master found out and said, hey, you know, I forgive you such a great debt. How come you couldn't forgive your brother such a little debt? And has this guy thrown in prison until he could pay back every last sin? He says, my heavenly father also will do the same for you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You see, not forgiving costs us a whole lot more than it actually does to forgive someone. The amount of pain and hurt that it's going to bring into our life by not forgiving is tremendous. I've heard Pastor Bob describe it by not forgiving someone is like burning down your house to kill a rat. It, it, it makes no sense. It's going to end up causing you more damage than the original hurt did. Point number four, we are to love with a familial love. Fill in the word familial or family. Our text says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If we're beloved children of God, that means that we are in the same father and we are part, we have the same father and we are part of the same family. See, my sister and I, we both had an affinity for sports, right? But other than that, we are completely different. And like any brother and sister, we would get in fights, we would hurt each other, we would... Uh, offend each other, but we kept on forgiving each other because we are family and we have the same parents. You know, some of you guys are parents in this room and all of us have that are in this room. We all have parents or had parents. And, and just from observing, I could see that nothing grieves a parent more than when their children can't get along and are fighting with one another. The same is true with our heavenly father. God is grieved when we're fighting with each other, when we don't have unity together. And Jesus, before going uh, to the cross, he prayed that God would make us one, just as he and the Father are one. And by that unity, the world would know that the Father had sent him. Right? We should be growing in unity. That's God's purpose for the church, to take a bunch of people that are different and make us one, have a, one mind, one mission, one heart, one love for each other. The enemy's goal is to disrupt that, to cause division and separation amongst the body. And so when we're walking in unforgiveness and we're not loving each other, we're really being tools of the enemy. We're, we're being used to, to do the enemy's work and cause division and separation in the body. That's why in Psalm 133 it says, how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, live forever. 
Remember when the, Jesus, when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him to teach them to pray? Right? And, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. He gives them this model prayer that they're able to pattern their prayers after every day. Right? They not necessarily pray the same thing, the same Our Father over and over again like the Catholics do, but we could take it. We could use it as a model prayer. Teach us the principles that we are to pray every day. But it's interesting to me that the way that this prayer starts, it starts, our Father who art in heaven. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't say, my Father who art in heaven. You see, in the very first words of this prayer, it's supposed to be this daily model, this daily reminder that we're family and that the same God is my God is the same God that's your God, that we're all one family together with the same Father. Later on in that prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples to ask for forgiveness from their trespasses or sins as they forgive those who trespassed against them. And at the end of the prayer, he added the commentary that if you don't forgive your brother, then God won't forgive you. The way that we demonstrate that we are a part of the body of Christ is by loving and forgiving one another. It's as if forgiveness is the family motto. And if you don't have forgiveness, it only evidences that you're not part of the family. Now, if you're having a hard time forgiving your brother or sister, maybe they really hurt you, they really offended you, and you just can't find it in yourself to forgive them. They don't deserve it. But whatever the, the reason is in your mind, you can't forgive yourself. Find it in yourself to forgive them. Do it for God. Do it because they are beloved of your heavenly Father. Do it because God loves that person to the same degree that he loves you and his only begotten son. You know that God loves you to the same degree that he loves Jesus? That's what Jesus said in John 17, 23. He says, I in them and you in me that we may be perfected in unity and the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Right? So, so forgive your brother and sister, not based on how much you love them, but based on how much God loves them. That should be good enough basis for us to forgive. Point number five, we need God's supernatural resources. Found the word supernatural. You know, this kind of love and forgiveness that we're talking about seems difficult. It, it is. In our flesh, it's actually impossible. In our flesh, we're never going to be able to love people the way that Jesus did. You might say, what if I don't like the person? What if I don't feel like loving them? Can I remind you that Jesus commands us to even love our enemies? That's not an excuse. Or maybe, hey, they're not in the church, or they go to a different church, or they go to some heretical church, or, or whatever. There's no excuse. We're to love our enemies. We're to love everybody. We're to forgive everybody. Matthew 5, 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, you know, God's not really asking you to do anything that he hasn't given you the capacity to do as a Christian. He, he, he's not. In Romans 5.5, 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint because... The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has poured out through his spirit love into our hearts. He's given us a reservoir of love to extend to others and forgiveness to extend to others. What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Right? If we're walking in the Spirit, if we're abiding in Christ, we're just naturally going to love. It's going to be uh, who we are, what we do. 
John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? So it's going to be impossible apart from Christ. But Paul says in Philippians 4, 13, that I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? So, so yeah, it's going to be difficult to love the way that Jesus loves, to forgive the way that Jesus loves. But if we're in Christ, if we're filled with the Spirit, it won't be impossible. Number six, God is pleased <laughs> when we love each other. Fill in the word pleased. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says, Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul says as a fragrant aroma. What does he mean by this? I often think of this verse when I go to this place I like. I, I think I might have told you guys about it. It's called Tacos Los Cholos. Yeah, it's this Mexican barbecue place. But when you pull in the parking lot, even before pulling in the parking lot, sometimes across the street where I live, I'm sitting in my room studying, and I could smell the barbecue. So they have these giant barbecues outside in the parking lot and all this meat on it. And, and it's like you just get a whiff of that. And it's just like, ah, I'm satisfied. I know when I eat that meat, I am just going to be satisfied. It's going to satisfy the appetite of my belly. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. This is Old Testament language for a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. In Leviticus 1 through 5, we have these different types of sacrifices that the children of Israel were to bring to be sacrificed at the altar. There was the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the meal offering. First, there was the burnt offering. And this offering typified Christ's complete devotion to God. And then there was uh, the meal offering, which typifies Christ's perfect character. And thirdly, we have the peace offering, symbolizing Christ making perfect peace between God and man. And the interesting thing is, if you go and read the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus, after each one of these offerings, God says that it's like a, a soothing aroma acceptable to God. See, God was pleased with these offerings, not because he likes the slaughtering of innocent animals, but because they brought forgiveness and peace to his people. You see, these sacrifices, these offerings satisfied his wrath. It satisfied his righteous, his holy demands for judgment against sin. And it allowed him to have fellowship and community with his people. It, it allowed him to be with his people. And so God, he smells the smoke of these sacrifices going up. And he's like, ah, oh, that pleases me because of what he gets out of it. He gets fellowship with me and with you. Leviticus 3.16, it says, The priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering of fire for a smoothing aroma. So it's all the fat, it's the Lord's. All of that, all that sacrifice, everything that it represents, it belongs to God. You know, God gets that same feeling when we lay our lives down and forgive and love each other. He's like, hey, that's, that's, that's a sweet-smelling aroma. That satisfies me, seeing you guys love each other, seeing you guys forgive each other. You see, when we minister and, and, and to each other, when we love each other, when we forgive each other, yeah, it, it, it's, it's satisfying that horizontal plane, that horizontal worship, that horizontal love. But it also satisfies the vertical as well. It, it, it pleases God. So in, in, in a sense, yeah, we're loving, we're serving each other, but we're worshiping God in doing so. This is a great passage. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, but I've received everything in full and have in abundance. I am aptly supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see the church in Philippi had sent a gift to Paul through Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus brings it to Paul, gives it to Paul. That's the church's service. That's Epaphroditus' service. That's their love for Paul. And Paul's saying, because of your love and care for me, 
God is satisfied. God is pleased. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. See, if you're having a hard time loving or forgiving, offering it up as an act of worship to God might give you the incentive you need. Number seven, you're God's display of love to this world. Fill in the word display and world. Follow my logic here. God is invisible, meaning no one could see him. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God at any time, except the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him or exegeted him. Right? Nobody's ever seen God. Oh, nobody, if someone comes and says, I saw God, you tell them they're a liar and point them to this verse. Nobody's ever seen the Father. Every appearance of God in the Old Testament and the New is through the lagos, the, the representation of God, the manifestation of God. It's, it's through Jesus. It's through the Son. He has come and fully explained who the Father is. So Jesus came and fully mimicked the Father, making him known so much that he could say, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus dies, though. And he goes back to heaven. But before he ascends, he tells the disciples, tag, you're it. He gave them the same mission that the Father had given him. John 20, 21, he says to them, peace be with you as the Father sent me, so I send you. In other words, the only way that the world is going to know the Father's love and the Father's forgiveness is the way that we treat them and the way that we treat each other. I believe it was D.L. Moody who said this. He said, I believe in the five Gospels. I believe in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of me. You see, we are a gospel to this lost world. They might not pick up this book and read about Jesus. They might not pick up this book and read about the love of God, but they see us in their daily life. Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians that we're living epistles not recorded on stone, but recorded on the hearts, right? They could look at us and they could see the way that we live. And hopefully by the way that they live, that we live, they could see the character and the nature of God. See, there should be no such thing as an unloving or unforgiving Christian. There's the story of Alexander the Great, right? One of the greatest world conquerors in history. In fact, he conquered the world so fast in less than three years, that he became depressed. He started crying because there was no more land for him to conquer. Well, he found out that there was another guy named Alexander in his, in his army, in his military, and that this other guy named Alexander was a coward. Well, he brought this guy, to had him brought before him, and he said, you have two choices. You could change your name or you could change your character. I ain't going to have another Alexander, another guy by my name, in my ranks. That's a coward. It's not going to happen. And I would think if you're a Christian and you're unloving and unforgiving, you have those same two options. You could change your name. You could stop calling yourself a Christian. Or you could change your character. You could start loving. You could start forgiving. Because that's what Christians do. So in closing, I'll close with this. We're to mimic God, especially in love and forgiveness. This is something that we're to be growing in. Now, how do we do this? How do we grow in this? The same way we mimic anyone else, really. If I want to mimic Sergio, I want to start copying Sergio. I'm living like Sergio. What am I going to do? I'm going to start studying Sergio. I'm going to start paying attention. How does Sergio live? What does Sergio do? How does Sergio talk? So that I could start acting like him. And it's the same thing with God. You see, if we want to become better at mimicking God or imitating God, we need to start studying God. We need to start reading the Gospels over and over and over, scrutinizing Christ's life. We need to pay particular attention into the way that he interacted with people, the way that he loved people, the way that he forgave people. And then we take what we see and we emulate it. We start applying that to our lives. but we can also emulate each other. You know, over and over again, Paul is telling the churches to imitate him, to follow his example. 
1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You're to follow me as I follow Christ, he says. In Philippians 3.17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. Right? Follow me is the idea. And he even commends churches for imitating other churches. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church, churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So we need to imitate Christ, imitate God, follow the example that we find in Scripture. That, that's 100% true. But we also need to find examples in our life, people that are following God, that, that we could follow, that we could imitate, that we could learn from. So my question is, is who is that in your life? Who is that that's quote-unquote, discipling you. That's being that example for you to follow and to imitate. I believe this, that every believer needs at least four people in their life to be successful. They need somebody that's a little bit ahead of them in their walk with Christ, somebody that they could imitate, somebody that they could follow, somebody that's been walking with the Lord a little bit longer than they have that could give them advice. That, that, that's essential, right? That, that's how we're going to progress. That's how we're going to grow. But we also need a couple of people, one on each side of us, that's about at the same place that we're at, that they're going to support us, people that we can lean on, people that we could serve with, people that could pray with us, things like that. We, we need each other. But then we also need one person behind that we could be leading, that we could be pouring into. And I don't care who you are. You have somebody that is behind you in Christ. If you've been a Christian for one week, find the person who's been a Christian for two days and start pouring into them. There's somebody that doesn't know as much as you do about Jesus. And one of the ways that we're going to display the love of God is by pouring into people like that. So we need someone that we could follow, right? We need people that are next to us that are going to hold us in line and, 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 and bear our burdens and keep us in line following that person. And we need somebody behind us that we're pouring into, that we're dragging along. And as we do that, we'll make progress in love and in forgiveness. But our number one example needs to be Jesus. We need to be studying the life of Jesus every day, looking for how we could love better, how we could forgive better, how we could make our life resemble Jesus's life all the more. We need to be imitators of God as beloved children. Amen. So God, I do thank you that you have given us this word. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to be your children and to imitate you. I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. As we were looking at these different, these seven different points on how we're to love and, and how we're to forgive and replicate you in that, Lord, I pray that you would touch us and speak to us on which one of these we need to be better at, Lord, and give us grace to be able to do that. I pray, Lord, that you would provide somebody uh, 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 to disciple, uh, someone to follow into our lives if we don't have that, and somebody that could follow us, somebody that we could disciple at the same time, Lord. But I thank you that all these things are possible through your spirit, what you've given us, Lord. So help us to rely on you and help us to love and to minister and to serve and to forgive the way that you did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.